Welcome to your regularly scheduled weekly Sunday morning 1035 appointment. Your weekly regularly scheduled 1035 Sunday morning appointment with the great King of Kings, the great Lord of Lords, our great and all-powerful Heavenly Father, Creator, Friend, and Redeemer. He who is worthy of all glory, all honor, all praise, all adoration, all reverence, all respect, all worship, all devotion. He who is worth everything that we have because he gave everything he had to us, which is so much more. What an honor it is to worship God this morning, to be in his presence. What an incredible and unspeakable, unearnable and undeserved blessing to have this appointment with him. But I have a question. Have you ever stopped to consider perhaps the incredible amount of preparation that was required for a person to appear in the court and in the presence of just some sinful, feeble, mortal human king. Have you ever stopped and thought about that biblically? Please open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Daniel chapter 1 as we consider a couple of cases of what it took and what kind of preparation it took just to stand in the court and presence of some feeble, mortal, human king. Daniel chapter 1 would ask that you follow along verses 3 through 5. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three, catch this, three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Think about that. Here's this pagan king. He's taken these, these Jewish boys as he has captured Jerusalem and he's taken them back to his kingdom. And he wants these young, good-looking, quick-to-learn, I mean, these are already cream-of-the-crop type of young men. And he wants them taught for three years before they can even come into his court to serve him. Wow, that's a lot of prep. I'm also reminded of Esther. 
According to Esther 2 and verse 7, Esther was already lovely and beautiful, quote unquote, according to that text. And even though she was lovely and beautiful, it still took 12 months, a full year's worth of preparation and beautification according to the regulations for the women. Six months with oil and myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women, Esther 2 in verse 12, before she could even enter into the presence, once again, of this human, pagan, mortal, King Ahasuerus. And even then, as we know, from Esther chapter 4, verses 16 through chapter 5 and verse 2. Even after all that, it was against the law to even enter into his presence and if you, without an appointment, and if you sought to do so, you could be killed if he did not raise his scepter. Now, like for us as a third case, to consider how much more it took or how much it took, I should say, in the Old Testament, God's Old Testament people, to even enter into his presence as a priest. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, God tells how the Israelite people are to be to him a special treasure and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. They're going to be his special people, his treasured possession, a holy nation, which ought to sound familiar to us from Peter's writings. But he goes on to tell even then how they must consecrate themselves for two days and wash their clothes, verses 10 and 11 of Exodus 19, before he could come anywhere near them. That was a lot of prep. But even then, even after all that, they were not clean enough. They were not holy enough. They were not righteous enough to even enter into his presence at that point. Verses 12 through 24 of Exodus 19. Wow. And turn to me, if you would, to Exodus 28. Look at the special preparations that had to be made for the priest to enter into the presence of God. Even in the limited way in which they did it in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 28. Watch this, verse 1. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. They're going to minister as priests to God. Watch this. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as a priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister to me as priest. 
I'm gonna, God says, I'm gonna have these, these people that I've filled with, with talent and ability to make these things. And here's the specific items, but brethren, if you're familiar with this text, you know that this hasn't even begun to scratch the surface. Watch the specificity which must be maintained for them before they can even enter into God's presence. Watch this, verse five. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen. They shall make the effort of gold, ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. God is really specific. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. You shall take two onyx stones, engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Wow! Six of their names on one stone and six on, not five and seven, not, not six and six. In order of their birth, not just six names and six names, but in order of their birth with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings on a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, so Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold. You'll make two chains of pure gold, like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Do you get the idea here that there's a very special process that has to be gone through in order to prepare to enter into the presence of God as a priest in the Old Testament? Right down to the color of the thread. Incredible, intricate. But it goes on. And I'm not going to read this whole thing, but in verses 15 through 21, it talks about the breastplate, exact specifications. Right down to the color right down to the size, right down to the fabric and stone settings. And as to those, he describes the precise number of rows, the exact arrangement of the stones, and what's to be inscribed on each one. Verses 22 through 28, he gives exact, elaborate, and, and minute details and specifications for the chains. We begin to see what's going on here. including very intricate details in verses 22 through 28 for just fastening, for just hooking it together. There's elaborate details. We move on. There's more instructions in verses 29 through 39. Look with me in Exodus 28:40 as he wraps up the chapter. 28:40. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics and you'll make sashes for them. You make hats for them for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. And you'll make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of obedience. This was a matter of submitting to God. This was a matter of being as holy as they could in their obedience to approach God. And the preparations continue. If we look real quickly at chapter 29, just verses four through nine, look at this. 
And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, the robe of the ephod, the ephod, the breastplate, gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head, put the holy crown on the turban. Wow. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. Bring his son and put the tunics on them. Gird them with sashes. Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for perpetual state, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. And this is, and I don't mean to bore you with intricate details, but I want you to understand how important this is, to just even be allowed in the presence of God in the Old Testament as a priest. And it doesn't stop here. For those of you taking notes, check this out. We could read for probably another half hour to 45 minutes of some of these things. Exodus chapter 29, verses 29 through 37. 10 chapters later, God still added in Exodus 39, 1 through 39. Then we would read Exodus 40, 12 through 16. I mean, wow. You see, the point I'm trying to make is this. Entering into the presence of the Lord God Almighty as one of his priests for worship and service was not something to be taken lightly, lackadaisically, half-heartedly or haphazardly. Remember Nadab and Abihu? They thought they could just, well, we can just, you know, any old fire will do. We know what happened, don't we? You see, entering into the presence of the Lord God Almighty as one of his priests is not something to be entered into irreverently, disrespectfully, or without the proper preparation for serving, worshiping, and being in the presence of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He who dwells in unapproachable light Fast forward to today. Fast forward to today. The world in which we live, our culture, has become a very casual, laid back, and lackadaisical culture. It has become a culture wherein casual has become the new king. Casual has become the governor of our actions. And wherein that process somewhere, there has developed a deep lack of respect, reverence, and commitment as our worst epidemic of the day. Our worst epidemic of the day. It's really going when you have people drive by your church building who will dip in the bin that's out here for kids at Hope Harbor and steal it blind. We really live in a world of, of disrespect and lack of reverence when people will show up, maybe under the cover of darkness, maybe not, and cut the catalytic converters off of your church buses. It's the culture, we, it's, it's the norm. It's what we live in. Everything today is about casual. From casual dress, 
to casual relationships, to casual intimacy. It's all there, right up to casual Christianity, sadly. <laughs> we have become so casual in our society today that some people routinely now go out in public in their pajamas. If you don't think so, go sit in the parking lot of your favorite store some night. Well, you don't have to, noontime will work. What's worse is that some of them apparently don't wear many pajamas. Come to a world today, I have a favorite cheap, I have a, a favorite cheap store that I go to to buy most of my ties. I can get them from anywhere from $4 to $7 or $8. And been buying them there for years, not all of them, but I mean it beats going to some of the name brand places and paying 40 for the same tie. Like I said, I'm cheap, okay? When in their, in, in their selection of ties has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and went in the other day and they didn't have any. But I'll tell you what, you can buy racks and racks and racks of pants that look like a homeless person wouldn't wear them. But you can't buy a tie. That's the casual world we now live in. Sadly, even casual intimacy is everywhere around us as friends and acquaintances and even complete and total strangers routinely hook up and move on without guilt, God, regret, or commitment. Today's casual attitudes can even be seen, can even be seen around us as friends, families, brethren, routinely just cast away relationships, relationships with God or their spouse or their family or the congregation they're a part of all over some silly disagreement. Everything's casual. Okay, well, you know, that church preached that. I, you know, it's the Bible, but I don't really care. I'll just go find one who preaches what I want. Well, you know, mom and dad didn't agree with me or my in-laws didn't agree with me, so you know what, I don't need them anyway. It's just everything's just kind of Everything's just kind of casual. Got to be careful, I'm going to start preaching here in a minute. And you know, none of this is really surprising. When you look up, how many of you, raise your hands, how many of you have looked up the word casual? I mean, we know kind of what it means, but how many of you have actually looked up the word casual? Raise your hand. There's not a soul in here that's ever looked that word up. Great, you're going to learn something. Because I thought I knew what it meant too. And then I looked it up. And all the things I've described, when you really start thinking about what the word casual really means, it, it kind of makes sense, sadly. For example, the word casual has four meanings according to Merriam-Webster. You don't have to write fast because it's the only slide I got in this PowerPoint. It's going to sit right here for the rest of the lesson pretty much, okay? Casual means happening by chance, not planned. Meaning number two. Occasional. Meaning number three, slight or superficial. Now we're getting to where the rubber meets the road. Number four, careless, nonchalant, dispassionate. Perhaps one of the worst symptoms of this new casual approach to everything in life, as well as what also lies at the root of it, 
is a lack of respect. A total lack of respect for anyone or anything, including even ourselves at times. You see, we live in a world where there is a fatal lack of respect for human life. Is that, does that make sense? When you've got active shooters, when you've got abortions, when you've got euthanasia, when you've got all this stuff, wouldn't you agree that there's a lack of respect for human life? Indeed there is. We live in a world where there is this lack of respect, this casual attitude toward the laws of the land. If you don't think so, go from here to Tulsa, do the speed limit, and count how many cars try to blow you off the road. We live in a land where there is a fatal lack of respect for the governing authorities. I don't even need to go any further with that one. There is a lack of respect for church leaders, school leaders. Had the opportunity over the weekend to talk to a teacher. Let me reiterate, <laughs> there is a fatal lack of respect for church leaders, school leaders, political leaders, and even parental and family leaders. There's a lack of respect, this casual attitude toward all authority and those in it. As well as even disrespect for one's own person. You know, it used to be you could say, well, that person doesn't respect anything but themselves. You ever heard that? That person only respects them. They don't even do that anymore in a lot of cases. They really don't have any self-respect in some cases, not even ourselves. That's how, that's where we've gotten to. And you go down to the local store, and you sit in the parking lot, instead of going into a yarn shop with your wife or whatever you do. I usually go with her. <clears throat> but when, when you sit there in the parking lot and you watch some of these young ladies come out of that store, I'll get to you guys in a minute. You watch some of these young ladies come out of that store with holes in their jeans in places there had not ought to be holes in their jeans, places that no other person in the world should see their body. No self-respect. Some of these outfits that these girls come out of these stores with, and I'm talking females in general, spray painted on. Cut way too short, way too low, that girl has no self-respect. She is advertising herself with no more dignity or self-respect than a piece of meat is wrapped and displayed in the supermarket with a minimal label. She is showing no respect for her reputation, no respect for her family, no respect for her body or the God who gave it to her. And as I said, that is not gender specific. All of us, whether male or female, are called to be, aren't we called to be different than the world around us, yes or no? We are called to be different than the world around us, to come out and be separate from them. If you want the scripture verse, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7 and verse 1. We are called to be different. We are called to be in the world, not of it. Isn't that true? John 18, 36. Yes, that's true. That's Bible. We are called to be strangers and aliens or sojourners and pilgrims here, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 17. We know that as Christians, we have a different God. We have a different standard. We have a different law. We have a different destination. We know that. 
Hence, we have a different lifestyle and a different approach and a different attitude. Don't we? Or do we? Every generation fights something in their culture not to let it come into the church. Every generation does. Most generations fight more than one thing. So the question I ask us, if we let casual attitudes, that is to say superficial, careless, nonchalant, dispassionate attitudes and practices come into the church as we prepare to approach and be in the presence of Almighty God. Have we just grown to the point that we, by osmosis and exposure to the world, just don't notice it anymore or think about it? Has casual come into the church? You know, there was a time, sound like my dad, <laughs> there was a time, there was a time. I could sound like worse people, by the way. There was a time when celebrities and athletes Entertainers, whether for out of respect for the people that they performed in front of or out of respect for the example they set or whatever, they dressed pretty nice, whatever form that took. Today, many of our entertainers, when you see them, unless they're hardly dressed at all on the cover of some magazine, they are dressed like, like they went through the Hope Harbor box and put it back because it was too nice to wear. And now, while we talk about that, do you know, that this is something to think about, just as a cultural thing altogether. That paralleled a time in our society when there was also more respect for parents, more respect for God, more respect for religious people, more respect for teachers, more respect for those in authority. Do you suppose there's any correlation? Casual can kill respect. And so my question again is, dare we exhibit a casual attitude in our approach to and appearance before God? That's the question. Everybody's got to answer it on their own. Dare we, dare we, after some of the things I've read, dare establish a casual attitude or exhibit a casual attitude in our approach to and appearance before God. Do, dare we exhibit an approach that reflects a, a, a superficial, careless, nonchalant, dispassionate attitude toward God? How many of you in this room agree with me that there is too much of a casual attitude and lack of respect for God in our world today? Okay, just wanted to know. I kind of figured that's the way it was going to go. Shouldn't we be coming into the presence of Almighty God for worship with a much different mindset and attitude that should be reflected in the way we 
the way we prepare to present ourselves before Almighty God, this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's, let's put it this way. Okay, let's, let's just, let's take a look at our world today at some things where people show respect by dressing not so casually. About a wedding. We're going to have a wedding here next weekend, not here, but going to be a wedding next week. You suppose the bridal parties are going to show up looking like they just got done fishing and crawled out from under the car changing the oil? No, the bridal parties at the very least. Why, why do you suppose a groom dresses up? Out of reverence and respect for his new bride. Why do you suppose a bride wears this beautiful white dress? Reverence, respect, beauty. It's, it's a formal, there's nothing casual about it. The commitment they're making to God and each other is not casual. It's a commitment for life. It's serious. This is a serious occasion where people show reverence and respect for one another. So how do they show up dressed? As I said, the bridal party's dressed up. The bride and groom are dressed up. Most people that attend a wedding are, they probably don't come looking like they're going noodling after. Okay? Just saying. What about somebody's appearing before a judge. They've been judged guilty of a crime. They show up at their sentencing hearing. Have you ever noticed how those guys show up, or girls, for sentencing hearing? This guy, you see his picture when he's, when he's put up and, and when he's getting ready to be judged. You see his arrest picture, right? And he looks like, you know, you see some of these guys. I don't know what the deal is with that camera, if it only catches them when they blink or what. But they, they really do. Some of these, you know, with a six-foot thing behind a, you know? But look at them at their sentencing hearing. Oh, their lawyers got them spiffed up and spit-shined and pumped. It's the same guy, but he got to look. You look good for the judge. I got why? Showing respect, honor, maturity to an earthly judge. Now, one more thing here as you're turning in your Bibles to Malachi, consider this. And these are all questions that, that I just want us to think about. In Malachi, last book of the New Testament, if you're having trouble finding it, go to Matthew and back up a book. Let's say, and I've used this before a couple of years ago at, at Miami during the gospel meeting, and Tri-State was that same weekend, but, and I believe I used this, but suppose some of our young men or women, men or women, doesn't matter, you have this incredible talent, ability to play basketball or pick your sport of your choice, doesn't matter what it is, don't pick mine, okay, whatever and you have the opportunity to meet with the dean of your favorite college for a full four-year ride. That's a lot of money these days. Oh, you, OSU, whoever, doesn't matter. I won't mention that state to the south of us. But you have the opportunity to meet with that dean, you get a one-time shot and talk with him about the potential for a full ride, four years to that school. How do you dress? How do you dress? Well, God has something to say about that in Malachi 1, beginning at verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then, if then I am the father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? And God says, you offered to file food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, isn't that evil? In other words, when you don't give God your best. When you offer the lame and sick, isn't that evil? 
Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? And, and I love that line from God. God says, okay, look, you want to give me second best. What would you do if you were going to see this, this high-ranking earthly person? You think they'd accept you the second best? Really? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 13. He says, you say, what way, what a weariness. You sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring the stolen, the lame, the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Should, should I take just the, the garbage that you're going to throw away anyway? But cursed be the deceiver who has a flock, has in his flock a male, takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And God's point there is, Simply look, when you come before me, I deserve your best. Whatever form that takes, I deserve your best. There's nothing superficial about our relationship with God. There's nothing slight about our relationship with God. There should be nothing careless or non, nothing, not just the outer. There shouldn't be anything like that. God has always demanded the best from his people. Is that right? Has he? Yep. Why? Because God gave his best for us, and his best beats all of humanity's best from day one that they could give back to him. That's why. God has always, get your pencils ready for taking notes, God has always demanded his people recognize, distinguish, and differentiate between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean, and the godly and the ungodly. Ezekiel 22:26. Ezekiel 44, 23, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, which we've mentioned before, Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 16, and etc. And this is especially true for those who minister and come before him in worship. Now, no doubt somebody's thinking, oh, wait a minute, doesn't God judge the heart? Well, God doesn't care what I got on for clothes. Good point. Excellent point, in fact. God does read the heart. Yes, he does. It is more about our spiritual heart attitude than our physical attire. That's absolutely right. 1 Samuel 16, 7, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. You're absolutely right. But here's the thing. Didn't Jesus also indicate to us that what was in our heart would be reflected outwardly? Did he? Didn't Jesus say something about whatever's in your heart, that's going to come out of your mouth? Didn't Jesus say something about what is on the inside, your heart attitude? is going to be reflected on the outside. Doesn't the way one conducts themselves, stop and think about us as Christians, doesn't the way we conduct ourselves reflect our love and appreciation to God, shouldn't it? Our everyday action, should that reflect our love for God? That we've got where? Right here. But it should come out in the way that we outwardly express. Absolutely. So, doesn't what we do in our everyday life show our reverence and respect and recognition of God's ultimate sovereignty, of course it does. Of course it does. Don't miss this. Which brings me to the one place, the one place where we can far less afford to be casual in our preparation to approach and be in the king's presence. Here's the place that we cannot afford to be casual because it does matter even more. And that is in our inward clothing. Think inward clothing, Doug, are you out of your mind? No, I'm just gonna show you here in a minute. You know, 
person can dress up all they want, but that doesn't mean their heart's right with God. You know, the Pharisees were pretty snazzy dressers, according to Matthew 23, and God said, inside you like whitewashed tombs, and he condemned them heartily. So it's certainly not all about dress, and I don't intend to make it all about dress, even though that's what you've heard to this point. But again, what's inside is reflected by what's outside, or reflected in what's outside. So the one place that we cannot afford to be superficial or careless or nonchalant is in our inward clothing, as it were. So let's take a look at several texts where God says what we must take off and what we must put on, speaking inwardly. And if we do, we can't help but want to give God our best all the time. First one, Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. In that passage, the Apostle Paul tells us what we must continue to take off as well as put on in preparation to come into the presence of Almighty God. Romans 13, verses 12 through 14 says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off, just like this. This is what the word means. Cast off. I would take this off and throw it, but my microphone's hooked to it. But you get the idea. Cast off. Throw away. Get rid of. Take it off. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on. This is what you clothe yourself with. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Look in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. He'll tell us again what we're to take off to present ourselves to God and what we are to put on to present ourselves to God. And it's about that inward spiritual clothing. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you, look at this, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. There's what we're to dress in on the inside. Earlier I talked to our young ladies. You know, God's even got a text in here for you on what to dress in on the inside, in the heart. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. I'll give you a minute to get there, everybody. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10. Look what he says to put on. That the women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness, with good works. That is what they are to put on to, for their beauty to come from. Now, this doesn't mean we have this discussion every time. Peter addresses it, doesn't mean you can't wear nice clothes and, and have your hair done and gold, and so, that's not what that means. If you turn over to where Peter talks about it, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he'll say that isn't where your beauty should come from, and that's the idea here. It's fine to dress up to come before God, but your true beauty comes from inside. A woman who is clothed beautifully in God's eyes is clothed modestly on the outside, but she is also clothed with good works for God. Finally, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Final text talks about this. How do we dress, God, to come into your presence? How do we attire ourselves? Well, again, first, it's about the inside, not the outside. We can't be casual in our approach to God. 
Colossians chapter 3 begins at verse 8 with this. It tells you what to put off and what to put on. And now you yourselves are to put off all of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. All that stuff has to be taken off before we come into God's presence. Matter of fact, it should be taken off once and left off and thrown in the garbage. It doesn't belong in the house of God. It doesn't belong as we approach this great king of kings in our lives anywhere. Throw it all out. And if you find any in your, your, the closet of your heart, get rid of it. Do not lie to one another since you have put off. See, there's that, that idea of having already taken this stuff off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Here's what we need to put on to approach God and leave it on, because it never gets old, dirty, or wears out. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. That's how God wants us to come into our presence, his presence. Did I read somewhere that as we take communion, we are to examine ourselves? Didn't I read that? You read that? I read that. And we don't want to drink judgment on ourselves, so what are we to do? Well, if we don't want to drink judgment on ourselves, if we examine ourselves, what the whole idea there is, is this. I need to not have a grudge against my brother who's sitting in the other side of the pew or a pew or two ahead of me or behind me, because if I'm drinking the fruit of the vine and I'm proclaiming to God, my sins are forgiven, but I'm holding a grudge against brother or sister over here, you know what that means? I'm saying to Jesus, my sin's not so bad. You forgave my sin, but that brother over there, I ain't forgiving him. Your blood ain't good enough to forgive him. That's drinking judgment on myself. Because you see, I'm making myself to be a little bit better and a little less of a sinner than my brother or sister. Because the blood forgave me, but boy, I'm holding something against him. The blood ain't enough. Well, it's the same idea here. When we come into God's presence, we are to put on mercy, kindness, humility. You know, thing about it is, we may not have this appointment every week where we're here all the time, but we belong to God all the time, don't we? We don't just belong to God Sunday morning at 1035. And so these are things that we need to put on all the time. But my point this morning is this. These things that we are to put on that start on the inside. We cannot be casual about our Christianity. That, that's the bottom line. Title it casual Christianity if you want. We cannot be casual in our approach to Almighty God. We cannot be superficial, careless, nonchalant, dispassionate, uncaring, uh, just occasionally show up, occasionally be a Christian. We can, the word casual may be the byword of our society, but we cannot be casual in our Christianity. You know what casual is? Talking about casual Christianity. You know what casual is? Casual is the first word in casualty. Casual is the first word in casualty. 
And casual Christianity, whether in word, deed, service, practice, attitude, approach, worship, or preparation, is far less than what our God, who gave his only begotten son's blood for us, deserves. You see, and no, I'm not done, but if you want to close your Bible, you can, I'll wait. I don't want to lose your attention, so you can close it. I close mine, it's okay. Just like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spent how long? Remember the test? Hold up your fingers. How many years? Three years before they could come before the presence of the king. It only talked about Daniel, but I threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there. Just like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego spent three years before they could come before the king, Esther had how many years? One year before she could come before the king. The Old Testament priests had to prepare and be properly adorned. Just like that, our entire life, don't miss this, our life on this planet, all of our life, our entire life should be considered as nothing more than time to adequately prepare for that eternal worship service that we are about to enjoy forever with our God in heaven. That's what this life is. This life is preparation to go to that worship service and gather around the throne. And it should be seen as exactly that. To get rid of the anger and malice, to be as pure as we can possibly be, to be so in love with God that, that, that it consumes us, and, and to become more Christ-like every day. And in so doing that, that's gonna be reflected by the way we present ourselves and the self-respect that we have and the respect for our God and our family and our church family in the way that we, that we dress and the things that we do and the things that we say. It's all part of this, this, this preparation for that one incredible worship service that we want to be part of. How does that begin? First off, we must be clothed with Christ. Ultimate number one, you've got to have Christ on. You've got to put Christ on in baptism. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says that we have got to be clothed with Christ. By faith, you're all sons of God. And, and that happens when you are clothed with or put on Christ. That's number one. Number two, you must continue that preparation. Well, once you're Christian, you know, some people think, well, once I'm in Christ and I'm clothed with Christ, all's good. Well, it is for a minute. <laughs> because you see, then the Bible says that we must continue that preparation for that eternal worship service that we want to go to, to be in the very presence of God around his throne. So we've got to continue to prepare and put on other stuff. Well, what? We need to continue to layer up, to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Now, as I check my eternal appointment book here, I see in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, that on the first day of the week, God is paid in full for each one of us to have another appointment with him. Every one of us. Isn't God awesome? We have an opportunity each Lord's Day, an appointment with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to present ourselves before him. And by the way, quick question. What is the difference between 
Sunday morning and Sunday evening when it comes to still being Sunday? Is there a difference between Sunday morning and Sunday night as far as still being Sunday? Are they both still Sunday? Are they both still the first day of the week? Do we still have an opportunity or an appointment to meet with God Sunday night? Do we have that? So here's the thing. Is God any less God on Sunday night than he is on Sunday morning? Is he? So we've kind of gotten into this worldly thing where we can show up Sunday morning and, you know, give God the best we got to give him in all respects, but somehow Sunday night doesn't always appear that way. Why is that? I really don't know. Steve, did you put less time in on your Sunday night sermons than you did your Sunday morning ones? No, I don't either, so there you go. It's, it's the same as far as I can see. We have another appointment tonight. We have another appointment next Sunday. It's not like a doctor's appointment or a dentist's appointment. It's not even like an appointment with a governor or a dean of school. We have an appointment with Almighty God. You and me. I don't deserve that appointment. But I got one, and I am so grateful. And I want to give God the best that I got, because the best I got is dirt compared to what he gave for me. In closing, I'm reminded of an account that Jesus gave in Matthew 22, 1 through 13. In that account, there was a king who threw, who had a, a wedding for his son. He invited all kinds of people, and they made all kinds of excuses. This excuse that they said, I don't want to come. I got, I got this going on, this going on. None of it was as important, but, but they didn't want to come. And so the father, God, is, is very angry. So he tells his servants, he says, go out into the streets and gather them all up. So they go and they gather this big crowd. And everybody's dressed nice, or dressed as appropriately, I should say, appropriately for the occasion. But there's this one guy, and he's not dressed for the wedding. He didn't adequately prepare. He didn't show the reverence and respect he should have been. And so God, the, the father in the story, comes in and questions him about it. You, you, you remember the story, right? You know what happens? The guy gets thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. On Judgment Day, those who are not clothed in Christ, and all they have on them is their sins, they're going to be thrown out into darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know that from a lot of scriptures. So this morning, I beg of you, if you're not a Christian, if you've never been baptized, if you've never clothed yourself with Christ, maybe it's the first time you've heard this. Well, so we'd love to study with you, but if you study, you're saying, you know what, I know enough to know that I need my sins forgiven. I need to be clothed with Christ because I want to I wanna be clothed with that purity and that, that, that innocence and that sinlessness, and, and, and that's the way I want to come before God tonight and, and next time. And I don't want to wait any longer. I want to be clothed with Christ. Or if you're somebody here who's already done that, but you've got some smudges on your clothes, you know, like when mom dresses the kids up on Sunday morning, they go play in the mud when dad ain't looking, you know, that situation. They come in, it's like... Man, you know? Maybe you're a Christian who's been clothed with Christ, but you didn't realize the importance of your meeting with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And maybe there's something in your heart you need scrubbed free by the prayers of the church. We'd, we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to baptize you into Christ. If there's any way that we can make you, help you to get to the point where you 
are more presentable to God inwardly, outwardly, however it may be. We'd love to help you right now. Come right down here right now as we stand and sing this song.